You remember that village priest from the film, The Princess Bride? If you've not seen this film, I'm not sure that we can be friends, and I'm just joking. This is one of my favorite films of all time, and there's this classic scene at the wedding of Princess Buttercup and Prince Humperdinck in which the organs are playing, it's a dramatic moment, and then they fall silent. And the priest invites everyone to stand up. And he says these memorable words. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. (laughs) Classic and memorable words, no doubt. Everybody knows that marriage is an arrangement, but the question is, what kind of an arrangement is it? In the film, the arrangement was of a woman who had been kidnapped and forced to marry the prince. Is that a legitimate marriage? Is that the kind of arrangement that God had in mind? If everyone knows that marriage is an arrangement, let's ask the question, what kind of arrangement is it? Now, we know that in this nation, on June 26, 2015, same-sex marriage became legal in the United States. The Supreme Court, in a decision five to four, overturned the Defense of Marriage Act, which had historically defined marriage in this nation as being between one man and one woman. A week later, a man in Montana, having been inspired by this change of definition, applied for a permit to take on a second wife. The Daily Mail that year reported of a a group of three men, they described as looking like a new boy band, who got married in a fairy tale ceremony. The USA Today reported an 18-year-old who planned to marry her long lost father. Back in 2008, the Scientific American was already asking the question about the possibility of humans marrying robots. In fact, not even a decade later, a Chinese man built a robot and married it. A Tokyo man married a video game character. The Huffington Post reported about a woman who says she's been happily married to her two cats for more than a decade. The Telegraph in 2015 reported a woman, an organist at a church, who married a fairy ground ride, a fairground ride, I should say. The SeattlePI.com reported a woman who married a warehouse who's now engaged to a where I'm sorry, now engaged to a neighborhood. And then the Houston Chronicle six years ago, reported a woman who married herself in an elaborate ceremony. It seems like now the definition of marriage is up for grabs. And it's up for grabs and to be defined however we might want to define it. It seems like Sheryl Crow's memorable words, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, can be now applied to anything that we want to call marriage. And it seems like a fair question to ask that if marriage can mean anything, 
then doesn't it really mean nothing? If marriage is permeable and malleable, and we can use it to describe anything, then does it really mean anything at all? Today we're going to ask the question, what is marriage according to Jesus? And we're going to see that Jesus believes that marriage is not nothing, and it's also not anything, but it was designed specifically and intentionally for a purpose, and we're going to look into that this day. And just a brief note as we get ready to dive in. Some may be wondering why we're even talking about this. This is a controversial issue, and many people are, are all over the map on this, and shouldn't we just ignore this issue? And I would just want to say that it is, is the calling of the church to make disciples. When Jesus, after his resurrection, gathered his disciples together, he told them that all authority in heaven and earth had been granted to him. And therefore he commissioned his church to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught. And let me just say as well that I know that in discussing this topic of marriage, that it strikes very close to so many people. For many people, the issue of marriage is an issue that's surrounded with regret and shame, or maybe even a longing waiting to be filled. And I just want to say, Jesus meets us wherever we are. He doesn't go back to the past. He doesn't ask us where we're going in the future. He meets us right now, right where we live. And there's much grace and patience and mercy in the heart of Jesus. And this study is not meant to disparage anyone. I know not everybody agrees with Jesus. I know not everybody will agree with me. I know even within the church, there's, there's much confusion and, and many questions that people have as we find ourselves living in this cultural moment that we never even had to ask 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so... Ideas have consequences, though, and Jesus is playing for keeps. In fact, Jesus said that he has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And that life, that abundant life, is found in following Jesus. And so we're going to ask the question throughout this series, what does it mean to follow Jesus when it comes to love, sexuality, and the Bible? And so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 19, where we began last week, and we're going to see here Jesus taking us back to the beginning of the story. And so we're told in Matthew 19, verse 3, that the Pharisees came up to him, that is to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now the Pharisees are coming up, not sincerely, but under pretense, they're wanting to test Jesus, and they're actually trying to draw him into a debate that the Pharisees themselves were having. And one school of thought said, yes, you can divorce your wife for any reason under the sun. And the Pharisees, mind you, were considered the holiest people in the land of Israel. And so they ask him this question, and Jesus answers by saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If we go back to verse 4, 
We see that Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 1 in his answer. And we actually looked at that last week. If you missed that by any chance, let me encourage you to go back and find that message online. That's foundational to everything we're doing in this series. But in verse 5, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, that passage that Todd and Brenda read for us this morning. And here, Jesus is taking us back to the beginning in answering questions about relationships, about marriage and divorce. He takes this original audience back to the beginning of the story that's found in the Torah, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And he's taking us there this day as well. And so our premise throughout this series is this. What we think about love, sexuality, and the body begins with what we believe about God. That's why Jesus takes us back to the beginning. And so let's pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And here Jesus said, I'm sorry, the, the writer of Genesis, Moses said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Genesis chapter 1 is kind of a cosmic view of God's creative activity. And Genesis chapter 2 zeroes into the creation of a man and a woman that God is designing to serve as kings and queens over his creation and co-ruling this world with him. And so we're told that when when God created man, first, he he declared in the midst of everything that was very good, that it's not good for man to be alone. Why did God say that? Remember what it said back in Genesis chapter 1, in that cosmic view of creation. God said, let us make man, and that word in Hebrew for man is Adam, which means humanity. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God wanted to create humans in his own image. And through the centuries, there's been a lot of discussion about what that might be about. But what often gets ignored is that in the ancient world, when kings wanted to remind people who ruled the land, he would set up images or statues of himself. At the time of Jesus, Caesar imprinted his image on coins. This was a way of reminding people who ruled the land. In many ways, Today, we do something similar like that. We put pictures of our president up in schools and in our society to remind people who the president is. And so when God went about creating humanity, he created humans in his image. They were living statutes, if you will, statues, if you will, of of God's representation in this world. And so God said it's not good that the man should be alone because man, Adam, just by himself, cannot fill this world with other image bearers of God. He cannot rule by himself. He needs someone to come alongside him. And so we're told that God said, I will make a helper fit for him. That's an interesting description. I imagine someone might say, wait a minute, I don't like this idea of a woman being a helper for a man. It sounds so demeaning. And and if it sounds that way to you, I, I get that. In our modern day English, it can sound like a demeaning role. But let me assure you, it was nothing like that in the original Hebrew Bible. In fact, that word for helper 
is the word that is most often used in the Bible to describe God himself as our helper. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, we're told that Moses named his son Eliezer. Eliezer. And he explained it by saying, The God of my father was my helper and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. The book of Psalms, the psalmist cries out, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my Azer, and my deliverer. So when God says, I'm going to make a, a helper fit for man, for this first king that he had created, it's probably more of an indictment of this man. <laughs> he needs help. He can't do what God has called him to do all by himself. And so he creates this strong helper. And we're told in verse 18 that it is a helper fit for him. It's interesting to look at how different translations try to capture the idea of this word fit. The Christian Standard Bible says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, I will make a helper as his complement. And the New Revised Standard Version says, I will make a helper as his partner. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, makes the argument that the word fit means like opposite him. Adam needed help, and so God created a helper, like opposite to him. And we're told in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from, man, the, from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what's really interesting about this translation of that word rib that I have highlighted here is that this word is not translated anywhere else in ancient Hebrew scriptures like this. That word literally means side. So, for example, it's used of architecture in the temple. Exodus chapter 36 describes the second side of the tabernacle on the north side. He made 20 frames. Or in Exodus 37, talking about the ark, he cast for it four rings of gold for its feet, two rings on one side and two rings on its other side. And so when we're told here that God took one of the sides of the man, we really should not translate that as ribs. And our English translations keep doing that because I think it's just the history of translation that people got used to thinking of this. But it's a side. So God, God took man and took a side of him. I don't know if it's the right side or the left side, but he took this man, caused him to fall into a sleep, took part of him, closed him back up, made him complete again, and we're told that God made from the other half a woman and brought her to him. That word made is often used in the scripture in construction terms. For example, we're told Noah and Abraham and Moses all built an altar. So that word made has behind it the idea of intentionality and purpose, construction. So God took a part of the man, created this woman, built this woman, and brought her to the man. And then the man said these words. These are the first recorded words of, of Adam and their poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the author of Genesis puts in these words. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 24 is the passage that Jesus himself quoted in talking to the Pharisees about how God designed marriage to be from the beginning. And so I have several phrases here highlighted, and I want to use this as our jumping off point to to discuss exactly what's going on here in God's original design. So the first thing that we're told is that a man will leave his father and his mother. So there's this aspect of leaving. Uh, Author and speaker Tim Keller helped me understand exactly what was going on here when he said, in traditional societies, uh, traditional societies rather, make the family of origin the ultimate value. So marriages were simply arrangements that helped the family's interest. The family's needs are more important than the relationship. This is often true in, in places in the East. Modern societies make personal fulfillment the ultimate value. So marriages are arrangements that help advance personal happiness. The individual's needs are more important than the relationship. So in contrast to what traditional societies typically thought of in terms of marriage and what modern societies typically think of, the biblical ideal of marriage is a covenantal arrangement that sees God and his purposes as the ultimate value. Marriage advances the ideals set out for it by God himself. A new family unit is created that is more important than the family of origin's interest and more important than personal fulfillment of the individual, though both are still important, just not ultimate. So it's God's design that a man would leave his family of origin and take a wife, and they would become a new family unit, blessed by God. That leads us to the second important aspect that we find in these verses, the idea of cleaving. My translation said, he will hold fast to his wife. That word cleaving is from the old King James language, but behind the idea of cleaving or holding fast or being united or joined to is the Hebrew word that means to bond together. You could literally say glue two people together. In fact, in the scriptures, we're often reminded that this idea of a cleaving to one another, a binding of one another, is a covenant. So, for example, in the book of Malachi, the prophet was rebuking the people of Israel, the men specifically, who were just throwing wives away and taking new ones. And he said, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not he make them one? And rebuking them for mistreating the wife that they married and disposing of her, he rebukes them and said, she is your wife by covenant. And God has made the two of you one. In fact, the book of Proverbs describes the adulteress who forsakes the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Here we describe, uh, the, the Proverbs describe a wayward wife who forsakes her partner from youth, and she ignores the covenant that she made before God. She ignores the cleaving that was made before God. That's why Christians have historically, in wedding ceremonies, made what are called covenant promises. 
When I was pastoring in Calgary, I had a young couple came to, come to me and ask if, if I would do their wedding, and they had written some, some vows that they wanted to use in the ceremony, and I took a, a look at them, and they were, they were beautifully written declarations of, of how they love one another and how the other person makes them feel. And I told, to, I told them, I said, as beautiful as these are, these are not vows or promises in any shape or form. They're just simply declarations of your love for one, one another. And everyone who comes to your wedding is going to assume that you do love one another. And so what I did is I, I tried to help uh, recast for them what a covenant vow is. It's a, it's a promise, a binding promise. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law, or the the Christian way, is not forcing upon the passion of love something that is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something that their passion itself impels them to do. And of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I am, I am in love, to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits me to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or always to feel hungry. I find that so helpful. When my wife and I got married, we made vows to one another. And yes, we declared our love for one another. But we promised to be there for one another in the future until death parts us. Everyone knew at our wedding that we loved one another. What they were gathering to do was to witness our vows, our covenant promises, to be there for one another regardless of our feelings. And let me tell you, I love my wife, but sometimes... She gets on my nerves, and sometimes I get on her nerves. There are times when we did not feel in love with one another, especially when we were in an argument. But our vows that we made were the cement and the glue and the binding of the covenant that we made with one another. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, is helpful as well. He said, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not be primarily a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can be safely assumed. Rather, in a wedding, you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of the undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. And when I read, first read this, I wasn't smart enough to understand what he meant by undulating. <laughs> so I had to look it up. It just means rising and falling. You're promising to be true into the future, regardless of the rising and falling of your internal feelings or external circumstances. And so when I do a wedding for a couple, I will often ask a question similar to this, to the man, for example. In the presence inside of God, Will you take this woman to be your wife in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, serve her, comfort, honor, and keep her, and forsaking all others? Will you be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Notice two things. This is a covenant before God. 
These are vows being made to God. And they're vows about future orientation and future fulfillment of these present promises. And so there comes the exchange of the vows. And so I'll have the wife repeat words like this after me. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. And I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife. For better or for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And so there's a leaving of the family of origin, and there's a coming together and cleaving or bonding or gluing of two lives together by means of promises about the future. And what's interesting is at the end of that passage that we read from Jesus earlier, he said after quoting this passage in Genesis 2, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In Jesus' mind, the coming together of a husband and wife is a sovereign act of God. And it's meant to be permanent. So no, Pharisees, you can't throw wives away for any reason you find convenient. So in this passage we see the aspect of leaving one's family of origin, the aspect of cleaving. There's also one further aspect, the aspect of weaving. The text says, and the two shall become one flesh. God gives to a husband and to a wife, not simply the gift of marriage, but what has been described as the act of marriage, where they can come together as a husband and wife in the most close and intimate ways, ways designed by God himself. And what's interesting, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Hebrew scriptures, right after the book of Psalms, is this little book called the Song of Songs. I don't know if you've read this or not, but embedded in the scriptures is this book that is a celebration of romantic love between a husband and wife. In fact, in this book, we see husbands and, a husband and wife coming together on their wedding day, and we see them go off to the marital chamber. And what's interesting, as they consummate their marriage, we hear these words, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Who is with them saying this in this moment? We are meant to see the smile of God and hear the words of God as he smiles upon this union of a man and woman who have left their families of origins to form a new family unit, to cleave to one another, and now to weave their lives together. And this act of marriage is given by God as a way for husbands and wives to reaffirm their covenant vows over and over again. What I find really interesting is that you listen to our culture closely enough, and you can see that our culture knows at some level, as much as we want to say that what people do with their bodies doesn't matter, that in fact it does matter and matters very deeply. There's this film called Vanilla Sky, and I do not recommend this to be watched by anyone. Don't take this as an endorsement to have a family night with your kids. This is um, entirely not appropriate. But in this film, Tom Cruise plays a man who has a a relationship with a woman played by Cameron Diaz. And they are friends, and they are very casual in the way that they are intimate with one another. And that seems to be working out for both of them for a while until the character played by Tom Cruise has eyes for another. 
And Cameron Diaz's character finds out that he has moved on from her. And so she drives and finds where he is and picks him up and they take off speeding together and she says to him, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? I find that to be a very insightful objection in our secular culture that bodies mean things and what we do with them means things. Even when we say they don't. And that's because God has designed this coming together of man and woman to be a uniting and bonding experience. And so when it's taken out of that context, it gets distorted and used for other purposes than what God has designed. And so my friends, what I want to see so far is that from the one, God made two. So the two may become one and fill the earth with sacred image bearers of himself. Does this mean that everybody will be married? No, it doesn't. Jesus himself wasn't married. But it does mean that God has designed marriage from the beginning to be a union of two like opposite individuals who can procreate and fill this world with other image bearers of God. So if we ask the question that we asked at the beginning, what is marriage according to Jesus? I think we've arrived at a definition. Marriage is a covenantal arrangement established by God in which he joins together a man and a woman into a one flesh union where the husband and wife can also be father and mother to any children their one flesh union produces. Not all one flesh unions produce children. But when they do, it's by God's design that that child would have a mother and a father to raise them. I know that doesn't always work out in this world. The Genesis 1 and 2 world that God set up and called very good is now a distorted and broken and in many ways vandalized world. And things don't always work the way they're designed to be. But nevertheless, let us see what Jesus is saying. Let me read it one more time. Marriage is a covenantal arrangement established by God in which he joins together a man and a woman into a one flesh union where a husband and wife can be father and mother to any children their one flesh union produces. I have just a couple points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let's follow Jesus' teaching regarding love, sexuality, and the body. He is the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the once crucified one who is raised in glory, and he is now crowned the King of kings and Lord of lords, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him by God the creator. This king is also the friend of sinners. And what a beautiful description that is of Jesus, the friend of sinners, one who loves us boldly enough to speak the truth in love, and yet also one who loves us truly enough to die for people like us, to reconcile us back to the Father, to make atonement for our sins, that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and fellowship with the Father and entrance into his eternal kingdom. And so this one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the friend of sinners, is rightly described as the Savior of the world. And now everyone who hears the summons of the gospel is invited to come to Jesus, 
to follow him. And so for those of us who, who do follow Jesus, we're called to obey everything that he teaches, whether it's popular or not, whether it's convenient or not, whether we have a lot of questions or not. And questions are good things, and we always encourage questions here at Mercy Hill Church. That's why we want to encourage people to ask them, to work through them. But Jesus gets to define reality, and we're called to fall in line behind him and to follow him. And if you haven't done that yet, let me encourage you, my friends, to do that this very day, to realize that you are just like every other person in this room. You have fallen from God's standard of perfection. Like me, you have sinned and fallen short of what God has called you to. But like me, you can also fall at the feet of Jesus and ask forgiveness, and he will offer that to you without strings attached. And that grace, that forgiveness begins to work in you, to transform you, making you more like Jesus himself. So let's follow Jesus' teaching regarding the uh, love, sexuality, and the body. Here's a, here's a second point of application. Let's embrace the fact that God has called us to follow Jesus in this cultural moment for such a time as this. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and they went to places like the Roman Empire, what Jesus taught on this issue of love, sexuality, and the body was scandalous. People did not like it. It found much comfort and freedom among women who finally, in Jesus, found an advocate for the ways that they were so easily disposable. He came and put boundaries around this most intimate of relationships and called husbands to love just like he loves the church. And so we live in this cultural moment right here and right now, and it's not an accident you and I inhabit this moment. And so what we need is we need to to find courage to follow Jesus in this cultural moment and to seek to navigate this moment the best that we can. And let me just say, I know this moment is a loaded moment, and it's an explosive moment. There's so much pain and identities wrapped up in the way people think about these issues of love, sexuality, and the body that it is very difficult to navigate this time. But navigate it, we must. And so let me call us to engage this moment Because we are actually for people, not against them. Let's do it with the grace, mercy, and compassion of our Lord Jesus. And so as we seek to do that, we have to do it with love and with compassion, knowing that not everybody's going to agree with what we think about this. They're not going to agree with what Jesus thinks about it. But nevertheless, it's an opportunity to engage people hopefully in civil, respectful conversation. And so let me perhaps just suggest a couple questions that you could ask in conversations with other people. You could say, what do you believe about marriage? And see what the person has to say. You can maybe follow it up and say, do you believe it can mean anything? We can ask them what they think of Jesus' definition of marriage and see how they process that. We can talk more about this in the Q&A afterwards if you want to stay around. I'm going to give a couple other pointers on how to navigate through conversations, even if they're, they're hostile conversations. So if you're interested in that, please stay around afterwards. But we're called, nevertheless, to live and move and have our being in Jesus Christ in this cultural moment right now. So let's seek to be faithful 
but seek to be allegiant to Jesus. And so Mercy Hill Church, out of allegiance to Jesus Christ, may you elevate marriage to its rightful place as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman, just as Jesus said it was designed to be from the beginning.